This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer series on ideas. Today, we'll be talking with Yael Tamir about her new book, why nationalism? Professor Yael Yuli Tamir is the president of Shankar College and an adjunct professor at the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford University. Representing the Labour Party, she served in the Israeli Knesset, where she held multiple positions. Professor Tamir is a founding member of the Israeli peace movement, Peace Now and served as the chair of the Association of Civil Rights in Israel. Yuli Tamir, welcome to the show. Thank you for hosting me. With your background on the left side of Israeli politics, how did you come to write a book about nationalism? I've been working uh, on nationalism practically all my uh, academic career. When I came in the 80s, to Oxford to write a PhD, the thing I was interested in was um, nationalism. I always felt uh, that as a representative of the left, I should uh, find my way within Zionism and be able to maybe uh, balance my commitment to Israel as a homeland for the Jews, with my liberal democratic values. Well, let's take a look at nationalism. Why does nationalism have such a bad reputation? Well, for good reason. Uh, for many, many years, nationalism was affiliated in our conscious with Nazism, fascism, totalitarianism. We were less uh, aware of its role in the positive uh, side of the event, self-determination, liberation, decolonization, all these things were also motivated by nationalism. So um, nationalism is a very comprehensive political theory. And uh, we usually uh, attract our attention to its most um, aggressive, belligerent form, rather than to its more um, moderate, uh, welfare-oriented political structure. And and what is the relationship then between the nation and the state? I want to be sure we have our terms right as we talk. Well, the nation and so many people in our... history tried to define nations and failed, Uh, the nation is the social, cultural uh, structure that actually gives uh, the state its raison d'etre. Democratic states, unlike monarchies, 
or other political systems need the people that they represent. The whole idea of self-determination um, is uh, essential to modern democracy. And modern democracies search a way to define the people that are part of their politics. So it's a sort of a, a ping pong game between the state and the nation. The nations needs institution, the states needs definition or demarcation, and they both fit each other. And this is why they were so um, sort of uh, resilient partners for uh, more than a century. Uh, and in a, a national, in a liberal state, well, what what is the difference between the nationals, nationalist point of view and the liberal point of view? I think the point of view stresses the notion of identity and liberalism. And this is a very simplistic way of putting it, but liberalism stresses freedom, personal freedom and the ability to be authentic and uh, a self-creator. And, and in your book, you, you also talk about the, the conflict, the uh, conflicting interests between what you call the mobile classes and the immobile classes within a country. Uh, talk about that a little bit. So let's go one step back and say that if we want to be our own creators, write our own life stories, uh, be able to uh, define the way uh, we live in this world, we need means. We need uh, social capital, we need personal capital, uh, we need the ability uh, to do the things we would like to do. Uh, and that's true for um, you know, getting education, um, making a career, helping other people, associating for some purpose. All these things depend on our means. And in the liberal world, the people that were supporting freedom as a probably first priority always forgot the importance of providing people with the means of uh, acting and uh, fulfilling themselves. Now, nationalism plays a very specific role in this um, kind of endeavor because it gives us cultural, linguistic, historical means to define us. Even the freest person in the world define them in relations to um, a certain history. They speak a certain language that brings in certain memories. It's this collective dialogue that we have with ourselves that allow us to fulfill many of our more cultural, uh, intellectual, expressive goals. But in my book, I stress the relationship between those goals, the more expressive and simple, um, you know, basic needs. Uh, people that are fighting for their needs have less time maybe to reflect on identity issues. And they would like to see the state supporting them 
in their daily life, in the most basic needs uh, they have, food, shelter, health, um, education. So uh, I'm stressing the importance of the vulnerability in order to allow us to understand with whom we should engage in order to fulfill our goals and make us uh, freer to act the way we choose. And it's just that idea of freedom that you uh, go into in your book. Uh, the difference between uh, the liberal interpretation of human freedom, uh, which you say is a misinterpretation, and the more nationalistic uh, expression or definition of freedom. Yes, I think that we are free within a context. We, we're not, um, you know, what Leibniz calls separated monads floating uh, somewhere in the space. We are grounded. We're contextualized. We can't understand ourselves without uh, this context. So what liberalism means is this need that is as important as many other needs that liberalism cherished. Right, I see. Uh, ha however, nationalism has the terrible history uh, culminating in German nationalism, the Nazism, and that's pretty much what disgraced the very concept. Uh, but you argue that uh, the social progress and the widespread benefits of post-World War II were dependent on the alliance of the nation and the state. So, uh, sorry. Tell yeah. me, yes, no, please go ahead, talk no, about no, that. I, absolutely. The nation state was the only state that could uh, develop the idea of a welfare state that takes care of the citizen and supports them uh, in a transgenerational way namely this generation respects the former generation and put in means to support the future generation. This continuity is part of a conceptual uh, framework that is very uh, closely affiliated with nationalism. And where does populism fit into the equation? Populism is the moment where nationalists, socialists, uh, liberals, uh, people of all uh, different political ideologies, uh, I take the popular view to be the only important uh, part of the definition of how the political system should be governed. So populism allows us to um, go with the mood, uh, the spirit of the age, the, the will of the people, um, and never balance it with some basic ideas that are essential and they are valuable, even if people don't necessarily now, uh, at that very moment, cherish them or place them at the top of their priority. So there's a populist element always in democracy. The question is, 
how much of what you do is attending to the voice of the people, which is absolutely necessary in democracy, and how much you balance that voice with other values and obligations. And uh, among those values are those who argue in favor of the free market taking the place or taking a lot of the place of nationalism or of government. What's wrong with that? Well, I think it's easier to answer this question in the post-corona or the, in the midst of the <laughs> yeah. corona crisis. Um, no free hand can handle the corona. You need a state. You need institution. You need um, social services. Education, health, social support system, probably housing, um, probably support for the job market. Um, you need a state. You can't, the, the, the market is good when everything is well. But when you have a crisis, when something goes wrong, the safety network is uh, provided by the state. Now, some people, the more affluent usually don't need the network um, on a daily basis. So they don't see its importance. But when you look at the people at the bottom of the hip, they need it more frequently. And they are the people that um, actually depend on social services uh, on a daily basis, even when things are, as we say, going well. Another element, of course, which you mentioned in nationalism is uh, identity and a sense of belongingness. Uh, but human beings develop those uh, important aspects of their lives in a variety of contexts, um, family, tribe, religion, class, ethnicity, uh, in what ways are is nationalism better than any of those as an organizing principle of society? Uh, nationalism is an organizing principle of society, and uh, it, its affiliation with the state allows it to do the things we have uh, been discussing. Many other identities are important, but they have less of an ability to be a provider of law and order, of uh, services, of support system, all of which are essential for our well-being and for our freedom. So we have many identities. The national identity is certainly not the only one, but it is in times of crisis and when we need it, the most effective one. Well, you make a, a, a good case uh, for the central role of narrative in our current political predicament, not, not just the coronavirus pandemic, but beyond it. So um, if I may, I will read the last paragraph you wrote on chapter seven, page 60. One of the reasons for the contemporary political crisis marked by inner conflicts and social polarization is the disintegration of unifying narratives. The combined effect of processes ranging from respect for diversity 
embedded in identity politics to postmodernism, reinforced by a growing antipathy to the state as a mega storyteller, made organizing narratives rare and less effective. One of the prime questions of this century is whether such narratives could be revived and what would be their content. I think this is a very essential point. So tell us more about it. I think the search for a narrative, something that was the essence of the nation, uh, came uh, something that people, let's say, in the heights of liberalism thought was oppressive, that we don't need a narrative. There are narratives, there are many narratives. We have to take them all in. We have to balance them. So there is some truth to the desire of um, people's minorities, genders, uh, in intra-group to express their narrative. But after all this diversity, at the basis of the discourse, we have to have something that keeps us together, something that makes us uh, willing, ready to uh, go out of our way to help our countrymen, our fellow citizens, the people we share the story with. And as you know, people are storytellers. And unless you have a story to explain to yourself, why are you doing it? Why is this important for you? You are less likely to be part of this collective uh, identity. And with no collective identity, there is no collective practice. And with no collective practice, there is no uh, social structure that teaches us how to live together, how to support each other, how to become um, human fellows in a, in a common endeavor. Now, most of the national narratives that are, are effective seem to have been organic. I, I'm thinking of, for example, the Exodus story for uh, Jews and Israelis that, uh, that is a, a primary story that holds the nation together. But even ones that are, are less historically deep, such as uh, George Washington chopping down the cherry tree in, uh, for Americans, the, these seem to be organic. They just developed over time. Do you believe that national narratives can be manufactured? Oh, they're always manufactured. Who knows what Washington did? Yeah, we, that's true. You know, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 one of the from my point of view, the beauties of nationalism. It's a very literary uh, endeavor to create meaning by telling a story. And in this way, it replaces myth, it replaces religion, uh, it replaces maybe personal stories we tell ourselves. Um, and it's never true. Probably 90% of national mythology and narrative are fabricated. Yes, but I guess it's fabricated over a long period of time. 
Is there any nation you can think of that created a, a national narrative in our contemporary time? Many. Actually, we do it all the time because the narrative changes. So people tell the story again and again, and they tell it in different ways. And many, many narratives are very new, even in Israel. Uh, we think the Jewish narrative, actually we are right, uh, is an ancient one. But many of the stories we tell ourselves about the Jewish narrative are fabricated and are fabricated for our purposes. We use parts of the history, we emphasize things that are important for us uh, and forget all other. So um, this is the way we work. We need structure. Uh, we need a framework within which we can think and work and give our life meaning. And we are very active in doing that alone and together with other people. And, and what are the elements that, that, that weave that narrative? Is it mostly newspapers and politicians or... Does it, does it come up from other parts of society? Every school, first of all, schools, and then right. church, synagogues, uh, storytelling within the home, uh, national celebrations. You know, we are approaching the Independence Day and we are approaching Memorial Day. This is all... Uh, Product, a, a huge product to tell an narrative. And it's, uh, it comes from up, down. Uh, actually, it works only if it's comprehensive to the extent that we, what the state tell us, we believe, and then we tell our children. And then it's echoed in the schools and in the television series and everything around us. Right. And uh, I would guess, and tell me if you agree, that right now what we're observing in the United States and then have been for quite a while uh, is the breakdown of a national narrative, that there seems to be multiple national narratives that don't necessarily come together. Is that what you see as well? I, I an expert on uh, the United States, but I would say that what happened is that in the Trump area, a narrative that was uh, marginalized came back. And now competition over the accepted narratives is very fierce, and people are hanging to their narratives. And there is no, um, there's no political power or social power that can allow them to um, put the two narratives together in a way that will satisfy both sides and give them a reason to think that they are part of one entity. Oh, that's a very good point. Well, then how can governments begin to combine the best of liberal ideas with the best of nationalism to build a more just, inclusive, uh, robust society? Well, that's 
most difficult question of all. Uh, some states that have, I would say, a heritage of social solidarity, trust, um, civility, like uh, many of the Nordic states, do it better than others because they are, uh, they have the infrastructure to use uh, in order to rebuild uh, society, even when it is starting to break down. Societies like the United States that sort of privatize the narrative and may find it very difficult to come back. Yes, and also the Nordic states, uh, until pretty recently, uh, have had the advantage of being uh, ethnically homogenous, uh, religiously homogenous. They, they had no issue of diversity, so all of their stories, all of their narratives were one. Uh, That's true. They've all, yeah, and they, that, they had the, the privilege of being small and homogeneous, and it's harder to do it when you are large and diverse. I can tell you maybe that one of, for me, the most interesting example is what's happened now in, um, in, in New Zealand, uh, a country that is going through a lot of uh, changes and the narratives are being structured by a prime minister, obviously a woman, that is more attentive to the nuances and ready to integrate them in a way that I think is productive and certainly not as belligerent and um, aggressive as some male leaders uh, do. So maybe the solution is a feminist one. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's worth a try. Uh, it, it, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. And how do, how do you see the concepts that your book deals with playing out in the, in the real world in this extraordinary time? Actually, very strange, because when the pandemic erupted, I was absolutely convinced that the attitude would be uh, much stronger global actions to beat the pandemic. But uh, unfortunately, maybe fortunately for me, because I just wrote on nationalism, uh, the, uh, the, the response was a national one. Country by country, states closed their borders, um, took a stand that all the people that are external to their borders are a threat. Uh, and started working to defend their system uh, as a closed national system. And the best uh, sort of attitude that they, that they advocated was that now as members of that group, French, Italians, Israelis, we have to take care of everybody who is in. So there is a very strong distinction between the in-group 
and the out group. The out group is not even allowed to come in. The in group is developing more social responsibilities towards each other. And that surprised you? I thought that the global institution uh, would play a greater role. Uh, despite my own theory, maybe this is what I hoped will happen. <clears throat> um, I was uh, proven right that nationalism, a time of crisis, a time of stress, is the strongest power. And everybody is drawn back to play the national game. I think the most uh, indicative thing is the way how heads of states now, but even bureaucrats, all approach the nation in a very sort of, um, you know, uh, rhetoric, uh, sentimental way with the flag behind them, uh, talking about the power of being together, how great and strong we should be. And this happens to different nations all over the world. It's the same picture, the same structure of uh, speech. Even the queen uh, <coughs> decided to go out of her way and give a very nationalistic and beautiful, by the way, speech about the strengths of the British people. Yeah, it's, of course, uh, tricky to extrapolate from individuals or group psychology to international affairs. Uh, but in, on, the, on the smaller level of individuals and smaller groups, uh, it's certainly the case that in the presence of threat, the group turns inward and it, it demonizes or at least excludes the other. So you know, what you're saying is that's what we're seeing on the national level as well. Right. I think the demonization is something that is absolutely not necessary. It is necessary that we come together to fight whatever challenge uh, we're facing. The demonization um, is the bad part of, or is the sort of an explo exploitation of the desire to be inward looking and ta taking it to the more xenophobic, belligerent type of uh, attitude. And um, I think the states that will do well in the crisis are those who will be very caring inwardly but also very attentive to people outside the borders, even though they don't see them now as part of uh, their responsibility. You make a very good case in the book that the wise road uh, for nations, the states to take is one that balances both the, the best of the liberal ideas with the best of uh, nationalist ideas, and it avoids the extreme expressions of, of both. Would you therefore call yourself a moderate? Yes, I think I am. Um, I, uh, I think I'm a nationalist, but I think I'm also 
a moderate and I am always trying to balance my national commitments with uh, my other points of view, especially my liberal commitments, um, my belief that we as individuals have many layers of identity and many layers of commitments. And I want to balance this commitment and make room for all of them, even if they sometimes clash or uh, uh, make things difficult uh, for those who want to uh, keep more than one set of commitment. Well, people often criticize moderates as being lukewarm, as lacking, lacking the fire of either extremes. Um, it seems to me that your writings are making an increasing case that one can be a passionate moderate because it's the wise way to go. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, Yuli, and I appreciate it. I think you are really a voice of reason that needs to be heard and promoted. Uh, before you go, tell us what you're working on now. I'm actually working on, uh, on trying to understand the way that the pandemic uh, restructured world order. And I think it goes back to the restructuring of the post-World Wars. It's a United Nations kind of a restructuring. It's about nations coming together, respecting themselves as social, political, economic units that take care of their own people, but also find way to collaborate with others uh, in order to make the world better but also to tackle the issues that states and nation states cannot deal with on their own. Well, that's a big challenge. I wish you a lot of success with it. And I look forward to reading what you have to say on this uh, challenging time going forward. Ayuli, uh, thank you so much for your important work and for being on the show today. Thank you. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Bye-bye.